I think he lost. I think he. I of think course, he, you're going to do something. No, 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 no. I think the Savon fight. I think the Savon fight. You'll give it a long black stop. Does he play the Make your fucking mind up. What do you want? Silly tosspot. Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we get to see Conor Ben box again. Now, I don't know how to feel about that because I almost feel like I've just had a year and a half where this guy's been in my field of view and I haven't had an opportunity to, to see him fight. I haven't had an opportunity to see him get banned. I haven't ever, all I've had is him tell me 15 different stories about how Clomiphene ended up in the system. That's all I've had. And his promoter, his cheerleading squad, they dug up some doctor who was never verified. Then they dug up a scientific team that the last I heard were trying to rediscover the work of Dr. Sebi. All of this stuff. And we end up with a scenario where Conor Ben gets to box in like a, like it almost looks like a conference suite at Disney World, right? Like real rinky-dink kind of show, real, um, real bargain basement stuff for a guy who drives around in a Rolls Royce. So if you think about the show that they've got at Disney World or wherever it is, I don't know, um, back end of nowhere, really. It's, if you remember the TV show, The Raggy Dolls, and there's all the offcuts, the, the bits you don't need, the, the kind of stuff you don't really want to put in front of the public. And that's what this is. This is. If you think about it, McCaskill came up with a conspiracy theories about why Eddie Hearn injected Baumgartner with ridiculous amounts of steroids in order to bring up broad climate change and Rishi Sunak to move everything out to 2025. Right? McCaskill was just away with the fairies with her nonsense with the other clowns at the Boxing Voice. You've got her on there. Now, I don't mind Sandy Ryan. Sandy Ryan's a Brit, got to back the Brit. But McCaskill, basket case. Austin Trout, the guy who called Eddie Hearn the devil, probably rang Farrakhan asking for help in dealing with that matter. You know what I mean? Do you remember when he was on the private jets, then he hated on Eddie Hearn, then he was meant to fight Anthony Fowler, didn't want to do that. Then he was meant to fight Felix Cash, he didn't want to do that. And then there was Khalil Coe, who I genuinely thought would be someone special. And there was a time when people thought he was the better prospect compared to Ben Whittaker. Well, <laughs> funny how life turns out. So Kelly O'Coe is another guy with something to prove. You go, I think it's Richardson Hitchens. It, it, it's really... It's an American version of a Steve Wood show. Like, you know the days when he'd have guys like Heffron on there and Hosea Burton? It's that kind of show. But Hearn will tell you this is the greatest thing ever. It's not. It's terrible. And to slide Conor Ben into that, like, how many additional tickets can you sell in a conference room at Disney World? Not many. 
And I understand why everyone's upset and all the journalists are wringing their hands and everyone's kind of crying into their, their cans of Boddington's and whatnot. Everyone's really upset and emotional. And I don't... And I'm like, why? Go through the list of the Hall of Fame, Roy Jones Jr., Evander Holyfield, James Tony. Like, the list goes on of people who failed drugs tests. People we worship in this country are known for failing drugs tests. Um, Britain's maybe most popular boxer ever failed a drugs test. And it got swept under the carpet because the other guy failed a drugs test. These things are not secrets. But people still hero worship. The same people criticizing Conor Ben worship these people. So if drug cheats are as bad as you say they are, write everybody off. Or what you're saying is you just want to see him suffer because deep down you don't like him. You don't like the fact that he's fought 21 times and he may have the worst 21 fight run we've seen since Svenotka. However you want to slice and dice it is cool. But I don't mind Conor Ben boxing again because quite frankly, I'm just bored of the will they ban him, won't they ban him. I've said this on numerous occasions, I stand by this. I don't believe boxing is a clean sport. I don't believe boxing is a majority clean sport. I don't think boxing is anywhere near being a majority clean sport. I think the people who are boxing clean are doing themselves a massive disservice, but I understand why they do it if they're principled. That's just my opinion. So I don't expect Conor Ben to be clean. I expect Conor Ben to get caught if he's not clean. I expect every boxer to get caught if they are not clean. That is the job of the authorities. So when Conor Ben gets caught twice by Vada, who are doing their job, whereas UCAD aren't, we asked all the relevant questions when it happened. And in fact, I was asking the relevant questions before. If you go back, the first person to start raising red flags about Conor Ben in this instance was me when I saw the post from Dr. Uz. And that's why people recycled the screen grab I put up because no one else had put two and two together apart from me. So any image you see of Dr. Uz's Instagram is my screen grab. That's how long I've been involved in this. Do you know what I mean? Well over a year. And I'm saying all of that really just to say I'm kind of tired of this story because the board have had just as long to go, right, we might need to amend our documentation so that these VADA tests mean something. I don't know how long that takes. I don't know why that's an issue. I understand that you have to have UCAD from a statutory perspective, but you already have the provision in your articles, rules, laws, whatever you want to call them, that you can respond to anything from any competent body. I also believe UCAD need to update their position to say any WADA-compliant testing body comes within their jurisdiction. This can, why can't this happen? It's been a year. Why hasn't that happened? The other question I've got is, why haven't the board just banned Eddie Hearn? If Eddie's going to have Conor Ben larking around in, in Disney World, why don't you just ban him? What are they scared of? Ban Eddie Hearn, so you can't promote shows in the UK. 
And when you look into the answer to that, you understand why this is all just a waste of time. This is all just window dressing. It's all just a silly dance that we're going to go through till Conor Ben fights here again. Because without Eddie Hearn putting on shows in the United Kingdom, the board lose about 50% of their money. And the gravy train can't stop. As Porky Russ would say, the free gratis can't stop. The largesse can't stop. The staying in nice hotels as an official can't stop. The you know, all expenses, the diems, the meals being included, all of that can't stop. But if you really wanted to clean the sports up, you'd ban Eddie Hearn. They never will. Just like they should have banned Frank when he wasn't, allegedly wasn't paying fighters. They should have banned him. They didn't. Because as long as, as long as your governing body is funded by the people putting the fights on, they don't have any power. So we're all mad at Conor Ben, but deep down we're angry at the board because the board are the ones who are meant to be protecting us. The board are the ones that are meant to be the custodians of the thing we call boxing. Yet here we are, doing the board's job for them. And I'm no fan of Conor Ben, by the way. I think Conor Ben's a nasty drugs cheat. And if I saw Conor Ben, I'd tell him, fuck you, for not taking the clomiphene, because I don't think clomiphene's a problem. It's everything else that probably went in prior to the clomiphene that I have a real issue with. And I said him, fuck you. And I, I feel no qualms about doing that. But I'm not going to sit here and say, let this guy sit in limbo. Because quite frankly, it's worse. Either ban him or let him box. I don't mind which one it is. But this limbo thing was just getting annoying because we're asking the same dead questions every time, right? Ban him, ban Hearn, ban fat Frank Smith. Ban that whole shitty operation because all they did is press the Barry Hearn button, which is go to war with the governing body and dare them to put you out of business. So this is all Barry's work because Barry's like, we've been paying this, this Ben kid how much money a month? You better get him funny. Get that man back on the damn plantation. You better get him grafting. You better put that yoke around his neck. <laughs> you think the board are going to stop me getting my money back of Connor Ben? <laughs> We'll see about that, young Edward, my son. So that's how I feel. Ban him or let him box. This limbo thing wasn't the one for me. I know people say they don't agree with my stance on it, and it's fine, but I, I just want to move past that now. I think boxing, taking the Conor Ben thing away, I think boxing's been reasonably good. Ben and Joshua have just kind of been the black marks on the sport of boxing this year. But Joshua's been a mixed bag because he's kind of been active. And we're more frustrated that we just don't get to see enough of him. But Conor Ben, we see too much of him. 21 fights, 21 wastes of time. And here he is telling us that he'll fight Keith Thurman, he'll fight Terence Crawford, he'll fight anyone. Knock it off, man. Just knock it off. So I think just in very simple terms, that would be my take on where we're at with Conor Ben. Either let him fight, ban him, I don't care which one it is. But we can't have this limbo where he's talking about, I'm clear. I, I, just, I just want absolute clarity one way or the other. And the sad part is that our board are unable to do it clearly and UK are unable to do it. If I was in the government now, I'd intervene and I'd say, right, boxing is a mess. We're regulating it. That's all we need to hear. Right, right now, that is all we need to hear. So before I jump into the rest of the questions that I didn't do in the previous episode, I just want to touch on some of the stuff that's just happening in boxing at the moment. So one, 
loving what Terence Crawford's doing right now. Like, you think how many years Crawford's had to swallow stuff and he wasn't able to prove people wrong until he fought Errol Spence. And now that he has, he's really going to town on everyone. And I know people say he should be magnanimous in victory, but I'm like, no, 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 no. Go and address every ounce of disrespect that you felt. And he's quite right where he's saying a lot of people that Crawford fought that we said were bums put up a better fight than Errol Spence did. And if what he's saying is true and Spence has activated the rematch clause at 147 pounds, I can't see the logic in that. Crawford doesn't want to be 147. He wants to push up to 154 and try and be undisputed there. So it just seems... It seems that things in the Errol Spence world don't make sense. I've said it on numerous occasions. Joshua's become a massive problem in his training schedule because if Joshua does fight in December, that would have meant about, what, 50% of Derry James's time has gone on Anthony Joshua. And Joshua's not the guy that made Derek James. We always talk about loyalty in terms of the boxer to the trainer. But where's the loyalty from the trainer to the boxer? Um, I, I don't imagine Errol Spencer's home life is the most stable either. I just don't think his career is going in the right places. And like I keep saying, I'm still not convinced that he, he came through that accident unscathed. So when this rematch does happen, I expect it to be the same result. I just think Crawford is fresher. He's lived the life more so than Errol Spencer. So I don't really see the point of that. But Look, it's another big fight. It's another positive move for boxing, unlike what we discussed a few minutes ago. And then let's move forward to Joyce versus Gilles Zhang. I'm hearing so many people backing Joe Joyce. I'm like, based on what? What the hell are you basing that off? I've got nothing against Joe personally. If I saw Joe, I, and I'd say this to Joe, Joe got fucked up. By Gilles Zhang. He got messed up by Gilles Zhang. Got beaten up. He didn't have an answer. He couldn't juggernaut this guy. So what's going to be different? If anyone has any insight into what will be different this time, please tell me. Because I don't see Joe Joyce slipping and sliding, rolling, bobbing, weaving. I don't see him trying a peekaboo. I don't see him trying a Philly shell. I don't see anything other than Joe hoping his eye doesn't get messed up again and he can grind down Gilles Zhang. But Zhang being a southpaw and just being so proficient at firing that left hand down the middle, being taller, I don't see how Joe gets past that. But I've been wrong before. I'm probably wrong again on this one. But I just I don't see how Zhang loses again unless someone passes him a brown envelope and says, mate, you've done your job. So... They're the things I wanted to touch on, but we're going to jump into some questions now. So, Zorba House, he might call me, he might be call me and go, it's Zorba House, no idea, it is what it is. Asks, why can't more boxers adopt the YouTube model of uh, marketing and promotion? I think I talked about this in the previous episode, let's answer this in really crude terms. You'd need smart management around you and you need smart people around you. Boxers have neither. Boxers are kept deliberately thick so that they never fulfill their potential and they're always made to feel reliant on the people around them even though those guys don't have three brain cells between them that's really what boxing is most boxing managers not all 
there's some who are pretty clued up. Um, if you're a young boxer, you can get Dennis Hobson to manage you. Cool. If you're a young boxer, you can get Steve Goodwin to manage you. Cool. They're guys who who think around the problem. Now, I'm not saying that Steve's going to turn you into a commercial juggernaut, but he'll keep your, your career foundation stable. I always talk about Jordan Foster and the fact that Jordan Foster had all these smart ideas in boxing and no one in boxing paid a fucking cent of attention to this man. Fast forward a few years, he's working with Kai Havertz, he's working with Conor Gallagher, he's working with Reese James, he's working with Reese James' sister, Lauren James, doing all the things he said boxers should do. Worked a bit with Josh Kelly. Listen, he's doing all the things he said boxers should do and Premier League footballers are doing it and they definitely don't need the money. That lets you know that the aim to... I'm going to add one. So I always used to say the goal of boxing... I'm going to start writing these maxims down. Can someone just keep track of these? We'll do a book on them. Maxim number one, the aim of boxing is to find people with money and separate them from their money. No, maxim two, boxing is a sport run by very insecure men. Maxim number three, boxing will keep the cash cow stupid for as long as it can so it can take all the money that it needs. And by the time they figure out what the game is, it's too late. They're past their sell by date. Give you an example. They were saying P. Diddy's giving all his former artists their publishing back. And you're like, well, he's already made his money off that. Like, publishing is essentially worthless now unless you can get your music licensed. But you're not going to get stuff from the 90s licensed. And you're not going to get streaming royalties because Spotify are unbelievably draconian in what they pay you. So you look very clever saying, I'm giving my artists their publishing back. But there's no value in it. Same with boxing. Once you wise up, it's like, well, what's the point now? So the real answer for why they don't do that, because they see it happening and they know what to do. They've got people around them who are into that. It's that the people around boxers don't have three brain cells to rub together. Their trainers, their managers, their promoters don't have three brain cells to rub together. And usually boxers don't have two brain cells to rub together. So you put all of that together and it's backward steps, left, right and center. In the previous episode, I said, until boxers become more than someone who jumps in the ring and has a fight, they will never earn more than someone who jumps in the ring and has a fight. It is that simple. Until you can connect with the people on a higher level than someone who jumps in a ring and throws hands at people, you will never grow beyond that. The reason Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson are great is for stuff that happened outside the ring. That's it. George Foreman is great because of what happened outside the ring. We know what he did in the ring, but those added dimensions are what connect with the people. But like I said, three brain cells one side, two brain cells another side. You're wasting your time. Next question is from Robbie underscore FFM. And he asks, am I doing another episode with Larry? Please see previous episode. Would love to. Just need the right kind of sweet spot to hit without going overly into dosing protocols and stuff like that, stuff that may you know, that may be entertaining, but may not be the right stuff to put out morally and may have consequences just beyond a podcast and its audience. So would love to. And I see there's, you know, when the right opportunity comes, we'll do something. But Larry and I talk in the background anyway. So when, when it's time to do something, we'll do something. We're, we're synced up on the same pages. 
And then follow-on question is, future of the British Boxing Board of Control and anti-doping. I think I touched on that earlier with the Conor Ben situation. I think, I think the board are in a mess. I thought getting Guy Williamson on board would have cleaned a lot of stuff up. I think Robert Smith is a man who's trying to have his cake and eat it. So he's trying to keep the gravy train going by keeping the promoters happy and bending over to what they want. But then that's leading to poor governance. And that's affecting confidence in the sport. And a lot of people are tuning out the sport. So it's affecting money that way. So Robert Smith has got to basically decide um, his dick or his balls. Which one has to go, his dick or his balls? So he either upsets the promoters by regulating the sport properly and accepts that they may go elsewhere, which is fine. Or he lets them run rampant and accept that the fans are going to lose confidence in our governing body and not care anymore and the fans are going to go elsewhere. So you either lose the promoters or you lose the fans. That's the choice he's got to make and he doesn't seem to be the man to do that, unfortunately. Next question from West Midlands Combat Sport. Um, God, I can't remember this. Do I believe fighters should train out of both stances? Yes or no? And second question from an MMA perspective, whose striking do I rate? Uh, let me flip it around and go with the second one first. I love Amanda Nunes. I think Amanda Nunes is the best striker in MMA because she realizes you're not going to be someone that transitions into boxing. So let's just go back. Normally on a Saturday, I try and get into my, my fitness gym and what happens on a Saturday is you get a lot of combat guys, wrestlers, Muay Thai guys, kickboxers, boxers, and we all kind of come together and we talk things through. And so there's a lot of stuff you can't do in MMA that you could do in boxing. Bobbing and weaving, you're going to get your head kicked off. You're going to get anything can happen. You can get your legs kicked to death. It's not, it's not a good situation. So you strike differently. You strike very, very upright. And so things like timing and actually just punches and bunches become unbelievably important because that's how you kind of assert control from a striking perspective because MMA people are not great counter punchers. So Amanda Nunes realized this and she will steamroller you with pretty heavy shots. So I think a good MMA strike for me is a heavy shot that isn't a single shot, is intense and is persistent. And I think I'm a big Amanda Nunes fan. I think she's probably the best at it because she's done the most damage with it. Some people would say Conor McGregor. I think Conor McGregor has cleaner strikes. And I think that Southpaw stance he has is beneficial to that. And he may have more pop in his shots. I've just seen Amanda Nunes do far more damage. Now, fighters training are both stances. There are only two scenarios in which it's okay for me. Number one, you've been doing it since you were a kid. Here's why. Between the ages of nine and 18, if you've been training out of both stances, you've made decisions in both stances tens if not hundreds of thousands of times. Nothing in the ring will surprise you whichever stance you're in. Crawford is testament to that. Andre Ward is also testament to that. Ward can fight both-sided. People say Kel Brook can fight both-sided uh, not to the same level. So he'll use Southpaw's arrest or a chance to find something new, but he's not naturally kind of like, like Hagler was. So I don't recommend it. And I'm going to tell you why. Most people in this country aren't good enough in their own stance. If you're not good enough in your home stance, 
switching isn't going to help you because boxing is really about high-level decision-making. The difference between boxers at the top level is not strength, it is not fitness, it is not power, it is not skill because you can win on a one-two. Carl Froch had a great career and he wasn't the most skilled boxer. It is decision-making. Can you make the right decisions at the right time? So whether you're orthodox, southpaw, switch hitting, doesn't matter if your decision-making is poor. British boxing is full of poor decision-makers. It's why we don't hold on to belts. Now, if you're a great decision-maker, an elite decision-maker as an orthodox fighter, and you want to experiment with, this, with southpaw for very clear reasons, and it may be you want to give your lead hand a rest, it may be that you want to use your stronger, more dexterous hand to land more shots. If you're behind on the scorecards, for example, it may be that your opponent's backhand is sufficiently powerful. You need to create more distance between your chin and their backhand so you can see it better. There are all of these things that make sense, but the primary driver for it has to be the ability to make elite level decisions. And a lot of the people you see doing it aren't at that level. Okay, next one's from Franachino, who asks me, what is my single arm hang goal? So for those who don't understand, I've been trying to work on my single arm hang off the right hand and the left hand. So like the gap between them right now is about six seconds. So I think warmed up and fresh, so not having done a full workout, I could probably do 20 seconds on my right arm and about 14, 15 seconds on my left. Um, I do it more for a longevity thing because generally if you, can, if you can hang like that, you're generally strong for your, your, your height, your weight, your age, all of that sort of stuff. So I think, I want to say 30 seconds. Let me just get to 30 seconds. If that feels easy, maybe get to a minute, but I don't know when I'm going to get to that point. But we will get there for absolute certain. And like, look, Just keep looking out for those videos because they'll keep coming. Sensei Diaz asks a question that, whew, Man, we might be here all night. Why do so many ex-GB boxers simply turn into small hall ticket sellers? This is a really good question. <clears throat> and I always spin it back to... So we go back to 2000. Audley Harrison wins Olympic gold. Gets a TV deal. I think it was a million quid for 10 fights. And so people said, that Olympic thing, that can get you what you want. You know... So then David Hay was like, well, if I win the Commonwealth Games, I may not get what Audley got, but I'll get something, right? And so that was David's aim with the Olympics till he ran out the, or the, the Commonwealth, until he ran out of the, uh, the Athletes' Village. But to go back to 2000, Hay would have been at those Olympics had uh, Fragomeni not beaten him. And then he went on to beat him in the pros. So then we go to 2004, Amir Khan wins the silver medal, wins the hearts of the nation, gets a very lucrative deal with Frank. Because Frank was like, there's no way Amir Khan's doing his own thing. After what happened with Audley, we need to keep control of this. So everyone's like, get that GB set up, you're doing all right for yourself. Then 2008 happens, DeGale wins gold, Jeffries wins bronze, Price wins bronze. And we're like, Oh, it's lucrative. Now, now everyone in boxing is trying to get into GB, whereas before that wasn't, GB wasn't the aim, really. It was making money as a pro, but now GB is that route to getting a pro, plus you're getting paid to be on GB as well. So you're being paid to do your hobby. Absolutely brilliant if you can get it. And then after that, it became operationalized. They kind of experimented a bit 
they've got Sheffield nailed and they said, right, we're going to use all the money earmarked for amateur boxing or virtually all of it to drive this gold medal program for 2012. And I, I think I said this in a previous episode. Once Joshua won that gold, yes, there was the Campbell, there was the Fred Evans and there was Anthony Ogogo and they all won and they all got good deals. People said, you've got to get on the GB thing. And it was true. If you win an Olympic medal in this country, this country will support you and this country will reward you. Why? Because we love people who put the country on their back and sacrifice. Like, I remember once I had to do a public speaking thing for England. Like, there was like a world championship when I was a kid. And, you know, you feel that pride. I don't care what anyone says. Like, you're like, I get to rep my country. I'd always wanted to do it. I wanted to do it in rugby. I just wasn't good enough. So here you go. You get this. But Hearn being a guy who is all sales and no compassion, no logic, no common sense, no intelligence, no nothing. Eddie Hearn just started to water it down. Like Adam Smith was part of this as well. It was like the sky machine just started to talk up GB. But the truth is, if you're in GB mid-cycle, you're not that good. Because the good ones would have just gone pro. Like, look, Dubois wasn't messing around. He said, I'm not waiting around. I'm going to go and turn pro. Like, only a handful of people should be waiting for an Olympic tournament because they're the right age. If you can get two Olympic games or two Olympic cycles, sorry, by the time you're 22, do it. If you're born the wrong year, sack it off. Anthony Fowler should have done that. Fowler should never have gone to 2016. Fowler should have turned pro. Once he couldn't make 2012, he should have turned pro. He would have been devastating as a pro. But he stayed too long. If you look at the Irish system, they all stayed too long. Paddy Barnes, uh, Mick Conlon, um, that dude with what's his name, Joe Ward. These guys all stayed too long. Um, look at Aidan Walsh. He's been in that system for ages. He can't turn pro now because he did all of his seasoning with the 12-ounce gloves and not the 10s. So his body will never get to the level it needs to be to be a successful pro because he's been in the amateur league too long. But you can, go through, you can go through the names of kids who have worn the GB vest and gone nowhere. I don't mean it to be disrespectful. Ted Cheeseman. There was a time when Ted Cheeseman was our Canelo. But maybe he got too much too soon. Echo Esterman, Team GB. He's now British champion, but it's been a long road. Chris Congo, ex-GB. Long road to welterweight titles. Like, look at the curse. Go further back. Joe Selkirk. Just injury pro, never quite did it. But class, should have been a medalist. And you can, go, you can go all the way through it, but deep down, I think there's a deeper thing. When you've got personal trainers training guys, when you've got people training based on science, you don't create tough people. Because everything about scientific training is avoid risk at all costs. But... Look at guys like Groves, look at guys like DeGale. They were trained not to be extreme, but they were trained to be in tough situations, and that's why they were good. David Hay, trained to be in tough situations, that's why he was good. These are tough people. They prove themselves to be tough. I don't believe the post-2012 cohort have had to prove themselves to be tough. And we're seeing that with our own eyes. They are not tough because... They're media trained, they're all nice and all friendly, happy-go-lucky, social media friendly, all this sort of stuff. And 
that takes away, that takes your edge away. What we need are some of those old school methods to come back. Get rid of these gimmicky coaches, get rid of these guys who don't know what they're doing, get rid of these guys who just want to come in to be Instagram famous, get rid of these guys who think they know what the latest clever combinations are and bring back people who have people throwing one, two forever in a day. Really basic stuff. Loads of intense hard bag work, runs, um, calisthenics, sparring, really simple stuff. Before you do anything clever, master the basics. Too many coaches in boxing right now swerve the basics because they don't know the basics and they don't know why the basics work because they've never been through that. They've never been through a 45-minute circuit when for the last 20 minutes it's just all just willing yourself over the line. They don't know that, but they don't understand how important that is when you're tired in the ring. Whether you're sparring against someone who's bigger than you and you're just having to will yourself to that bell, all of that stuff. You've got all of these people going, well, in this journal it says if you put... <laughs> One eye patch over the eye and have him jabbing, he will jab 15% quicker. Okay, how do you know that? Well, we tested it on rodents and the rodents were jabbing quicker. That means humans will jab quicker. Okay then, mate. Yeah. Great. Thanks. And that's really the problem. Too many people reading too many scientific articles about how to train and they're forgetting to train people hard. That's it. Because personal training doesn't require you train people hard. Because once you start training people hard, you scare them and they don't come back. So you've got to train them like, you've got to train them enough to sweat, but not too much that they can't recover for the next day. It's as simple as that. And you've got those people teaching people how to box. That's the start and end of it. Um, question from Jam Moore or Jamar. Sorry, hey, if I got it wrong, uh, my writing's terrible. Who asked me, who's my favorite non-boxing sports person? I'm like, ah. Ooh. So some of them are easy to call out. Roy Keane, Clarence Sadoff, Jason Robinson. Right? Off the top of my head, they are. Roy Keane I love because I always wanted to play football like Roy Keane. Because I wasn't the most skillful, but I knew that I could tackle. I knew I could pass the ball to someone next to me. And I knew I could run forward and receive the ball again. And that's all I ever did. Kept it really simple. Um, my defenders loved me because I kept a lot of trouble away from them. My midfield loved me because I protected them. And my forwards loved me because you know, I could take out opposition defenders. And I used to love Roy. And when I read Roy's book, the first one, that was everything I could relate to so much about him, like that permanent sense of injustice, like the world has never been fair to me. And, that, and then that inability to control it once the world started to be nice to you. So I can relate to Roy in a lot of ways. And then, obviously, the, the Vieira thing in the tunnel. <sighs> and I'm an Arsenal fan, as everyone knows. But when he did that, I was like, okay, Roy. R Roy's really about that. You know, Roy's so hard, he made a guy try and headbutt him and break his own nose. That's Roy Keane for you. Clarence Sadoff, because I just believe Sadoff is the greatest midfielder of his generation. Of all the footballers bought, that made their debut between 1995 and now, Clarence Sadoff is the best midfielder to have walked on a football pitch. Don't at me. Don't debate it. What's it? Four Champions Leagues, three different clubs, played midfield completely differently in each of those Champions League wins. The man is superhuman. Clarence Sadoff is the greatest midfielder, as far as I'm concerned. Um, 
you don't have the career he has if you're not special. Uh, start and end of it. So they're easy for me. Jason Robinson, he got me into rugby. So I remember being new to the country and they had this thing like clash of the codes. It was Bath Rugby who were the dominant union team against Wigan Rugby League who were the dominant league team. And so they played two games. One was Rugby Union, one was Rugby League. And I forget which order they were in. But in the Rugby League one, Union guys got cooked. Couldn't live with the work rate. The stamina destroyed them. In the Union game, Bath were able to use their forward dominance to basically roll over Wigan. But any time the ball went loose and Wigan could run, they tore Bath to shreds. And Jason Robinson was at the heart of that. Like I remember watching him and I said, I could play. If he can play, I can play. And in that game as well, was a guy who I got to know personally and is someone I look up to a lot, Steve Rajomo, who played, uh, I think he played flanker that day for Bath. But then look at Jason Robinson. Jason Robinson is one of the greatest rugby league players of all time. Wigan would have to put a statue up to Jace because he won so much. Um, had almost the perfect rugby league career. Did everything you can do as a rugby league player. Then switches to Union. And in no time, he is a British and Irish line. He's an England international. He's a World Cup winner. He's England captain. I think the first black England captain. He then plays in the 2007 World Cup at like 34 years old. And is still our best player. That man never put a foot wrong. The way he talked to rugby union was incredible. A lot of people didn't make it. If you look at Henry Paul, his union career wasn't great. Andy Farrell's union career wasn't great. Jason Robinson's the guy who is Hall of Fame in both codes. I don't think there are many people, and I know people push back and say, what about Sonny Bill Williams? Jason Robinson's light years ahead of Sonny Bill Williams. Just go and watch a Jason Robinson highlight reel, and you tell me he won't make you fall in love with playing rugby. But we can go through other sports, like American football. Uh, I'm a massive Michael Vick fan pre-dog fighting and arrest, I thought pre-jail Michael Vick, freak athlete. Um, you can go further back. Bo Jackson, two-sport legend. Dion Sanders was my guy growing up. I always wanted to be as good an athlete as he was. His ability to read games, intercept, freakish. Loved Ken Griffey Jr. in baseball. Basketball, obviously Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan. Love Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer. Um, not necessarily a big Kobe fan, weirdly enough, but big Allen Iverson fan. Um, uh, what other sports do we need to look at? We can't, so I can't use boxing, unfortunately, but that's one of my reference points. We've talked about football. Um, tennis, love Djokovic, love Federer. I think Federer is one of the greatest artists in any sport. Um, used to love Sampras. I remember being a kid and Sampras won all of those majors and you didn't think anyone would get close to Sampras till Federer did. And you're like, wow. Then Nadal came. I'm not a big Nadal fan, but Nadal came. You're like, oh, not again. And Djokovic has almost come and he's the culmination of everything good you can do in tennis. And I always look at someone like Novak Djokovic and I go, What's the next evolution of a tennis player after Djokovic? He has everything. 
And I think after Djokovic retires, there'll be a lull and it'll be like the women's game where everyone's winning stuff. And it'll be very hard to establish dominance at that point because we're just not breeding tough competitors anymore as a society. Um, some other stuff I'm going to call out because I haven't called out many women. So women I respect in sport. Uh, Steffi Graf. used to love Steffi Graf when I was a kid. Simone Biles, as much as she grifts off mental health, I'm a big fan of hers. Danica Patrick, big fan of Danica Patrick. Um, Powerlifting-wise, Tamara Walcott's one of my favourites. Um, unbelievably strong, like ridiculously strong. Whether you're on gear or not is irrelevant. Like, she's built to be strong. <laughs> you know, I always say that to people. I say, you can talk about doping in powerlifting, but the scary thing about powerlifting is when you pull 280 kilos off the floor, that bar is digging through your hands. That's the scary bit. Pulling the thing off the ground is easy. You've got big muscles behind you. It's when it's, got a, it's ripping through your hand and your grip is fighting to stay together. So, yeah, big fan of hers. Amanda Lawrence, you can put into that, that mix as well. Um. God, I've kind of gone all around the houses. I don't know. It's probably sports that I've missed out on. Uh, I'm going to make it real, actually. I'm going to say, in terms of people I've shared a sporting arena with, like rugby pitch or whatever, I used to play football with a guy called Tristan Lawrence. Anyone from the Oxford region will know who Tristan Lawrence is. Tristan Lawrence is maybe the best footballer I've ever played alongside. Um, I remember Tristan being 15 and a half, maybe 16 stone, and being the fastest player on the pitch. Um, most skillful player. I, there was a game when we played with Tricky, and he was centre-back, and he was just lying, lying on the grass. He was literally laid down on the grass. And they must have seen that they've tried to hoof the ball over the top to get at him. He just got up, ran, outran the striker, handled it, got rid. Best football I've ever played with is Tristan Lawrence by far. Um, best rugby player I've ever played alongside. Ooh. David Essien, London Nigerians. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen someone who at 43 years old was playing level three rugby at 43 years old could play anywhere could play flanker fly half center fullback in his 40s real freak of a man and taught me a lot about how to play the game of rugby as well so i think that's a pretty long-winded answer but hopefully that's the flavor of some of the things that i'm interested in dan sapien with a really good question i love this one would the heavyweight division have been better off if fury hadn't beaten the count in the first wilder fight hell Yes, Fury needed that defeat. He is insufferable now. He is insufferable. And we have to kind of bend to his will now, which is irritating me. Now we've got this Nganu fight. We've had the WWE stuff, and it's been entertaining, but it's not boxing. What has he really given us in this second act of his career? He's given us three Wilder fights, which we're grateful for. Then he's just given us Dross. Chisora, White, this person, that person, yada, yada, yada. He's given us nothing. Yeah? He's literally given us nothing. 
This is not a road to greatness that he's walking. But I, I maintain this point. Until he doesn't have to pay that income tax in Dubai anymore, he's going to keep doing this. Once he's discharged all of that, then I think you'll see him start picking and choosing the fights. And there's still that strategic play of getting control over Saudi. But I think the heavyweight division is always better when Deontay Wilder has a belt. Because he strikes me as a guy who is unafraid. And he's shown it. So yeah, I think between Joshua and Fury, they basically screwed up the heavyweight division. They made it a nightmare. And they turned off millions of casual fans because what they showed is they're in it for themselves. They're not in it for the sport. They're not in it for the legacy. They're not in it for the glory. And when you take legacy, glory, and entertainment out of sport, you take the fans away. You get the sad people like me who keep watching. And I think it's on us to stop watching. <laughs> we need to get better hobbies, guys. Man. Let's all agree on that. Mate, I can't even read my own writing now. So I'm going to just say, Raw Tumnal asks, if you have savings and you're going to invest in anything, what would you invest in? So first and foremost, I'm not an investment professional. So anything I say about investing, do not take as advice. It is not advice. But if it was me right now, I'd just be buying physical assets, assets that generate an income. That's it. Shares, property, land, whatever. Anything that can generate an income, I'd buy because at some point, this thing's all going to go south and they're just going to pump a load of funny money into the economy and create asset bubbles. And in those asset bubbles, you'll want to be holding something that goes up in value. And that's your only, your only hedge against inflation is that. It, but this is not financial advice. Do not take it as such. Go and seek qualified advice from people with their CMAP, their IFA qualifications, not me. I am not a guy that offers that. I just tell people, buy stuff that can generate an income and you won't go wrong in life. It's as simple as that. Whether it's a dividend, whether it's rent, as long as it can give you asset growth and a bit of income on top, you're all good. Don't think this is a question. It's a statement from Taft Punk where he says, Robert Smith and Grant Smith never get mentioned enough. I think you just take it a piss, mate. That's all good. Uh, we'll play along. Robert Smith, as I said earlier, um, isn't that, do I shoot off my dick or my balls? Until he can solve that dilemma, he's just got his hands on his balls and nothing's happening. That's all I'll say. Boxing costs go up. Um, they've had a nightmare with the immigration situation. It's getting harder and harder for those guys trying to build a profile as promoters. It's just getting harder. I think the aim is to squeeze a lot of these small guys out and just consolidate boxing operations so the board only have to deal with three or four promoters. Uh, they can get more control that way. But yeah, not my guy. Grant Smith, Steel City Gym, it's doing okay. Um, got a lot of talent in there. Good luck to him. Can't say anything disrespectful because he's never disrespected me. I think he's done well with this kid, Dalton Smith. Uh, Dalton Smith shows that actually you know, that road to world champion isn't as easy as whatever Eddie Hearn says in those IFL interviews. But I think he can get there because he's a tough kid who's been trained and raised the right way. So good luck to him. Good luck to Sonny Edwards against Bam Rodriguez. Um, this is his chance in the big time. Good luck to them. And like, when a gym's popping, it's popping. But just know there were times when it wasn't popping. And there'll be times when it's not popping again. But let's stay balanced when we praise and when we criticize because we have to understand that 
that's just how the game goes. One day you're on top, the next day you're not. It doesn't mean that you become a bad trainer overnight. Uh, question from, it's either Yeah Roy or Yeah Roxy. My handwriting is terrible. This is why I can't delay these things. So apologies for that. Asked me to explain my idea around um, geography, geometry and psychology. I genuinely think boxing is down to a lot of things, right? There are a lot of maxims you can write. Someone, whoever's keeping track, add this to the list, right? You can break everything in boxing down to three things. Like I always talk about attack is get in, get off, get out, right? But you can talk about defense as distance, position, protection, right? It's really that simple. People overcomplicate it by talking about multi-phase attacks and stuff like that. Like I don't even talk about defense anymore. I just talk about transitions between attacks. Because that's, especially when you're coaching amateurs, I'm really just attacking, transitioning, attacking again. And so with that in place, the person who throws the most punches normally wins the fight. Now, within that, you have a conversation about geography, geometry, and psychology. So geography is where the fight happens. I like, like for example, I love knockouts that happen in the middle of the ring because they're harder to achieve. You haven't got the rope being your friend, so your punch has to be spot on. That's why I loved Lennox's stoppage of Hasim Rachman, because that's exactly what that was. So when we talk about ring geography, something that annoys me when I see people always sliding towards the ropes, because there's not much you can do off the ropes, unless you're a good counterpuncher. Now name me 50 good counterpunchers. Hard, isn't it? That's why people who are counterpunchers tend to do worse in amateur bouts, and they always believe they got robbed because they landed five clean shots, but this other guy landed a hundred messy ones. It's, yeah, so it's, a, it's an exercise in delusion. So for me, good boxers control where the fight happens. Yeah. If you're a tall, rangy boxer and you can control the middle of the ring, you're damn good because you know the other guy's trying to push you back. If you're a short, stocky guy for your weight class and you're pushing that guy back to the ropes to do your work, you're controlling the geography of that rig, of that fight. Do you see what I mean? So when you start to watch who can impose their way on the opponent, that's the key thing. When you talk about geometry, where are the fighters in relation to each other? That's all that stuff like lateral movement, shifting head position, high head position, low head position. So understanding that your positioning can do two things. It can open up opportunities for you and it can shut off opportunities for your opponent. Bernard Hopkins, perfect example of this. Really good boxers just shut down your options without you even realizing. That's what they talk about when they talk about he's setting traps. They can put you in certain positions just by where they stand. They can put you in position by the way they shape up in front of you. And that's all that talk around angles and positioning. That's your, your in-ring geometry. And that's the skill in itself, and people don't practice that, but you should. Especially when you're on the inside, and there's not a lot of space, and you're negotiating for opportunities. The ability to subtly shift angle and position can open up your double left hook, if you're smart enough. And then the psychology is that stuff like, if I know there's a kid who likes to take the lead in a fight, likes to score his points early, I don't allow him to do that. If I know there's a guy that can't fight going backwards, I want to take his confidence away by shoving him backwards and have him doubting himself. And it's making sure that at any time you see your opponent getting confidence, you shut that down. 
And sometimes it's a forearm to the neck. Yeah, you've got to just break their moment of confidence. Sometimes you might step on a toe. Whatever it is, like, you've got to be crafty in there to control that psychology so you feel good while making them feel uncomfortable. I've said this in a previous episode, but this is it. The quickest way to make someone feel like a bitch in the ring is to crank up the pace. Take it to a place they haven't trained for and watch how quickly everything falls apart. That's how you break people psychologically. Take them to a place they haven't trained for and they'll just fight on instinct. And when they fight on instinct, that's when you know you've got them. Pretty simple. Joe, Joe for numbers Smith asks, who, who do I think the next elite star is? Ellis Trowbridge. Um, I've known Ellis since he was 15. I think he's class, man. I just, he's elegant. Elegant Southpaw can box. Awesome story. Um, son of, I think it's Duke McKenzie. He's the son of... Um, I'll tell you why I like Ellis. It's a beautiful story. His granddad used to bring him down to Fitzroy Lodge to train on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And when we were there, there was a young girl that used to train there as well called Maisie. Maisie's lovely. I think those two were, were the same age, actually. And all these years later, they're together as a couple. And she supports him. And I just see that and I go, wow, that's incredible. And I didn't even know. I used to just see them. I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. And I'm gutted that he's not at the lodge anymore because he was the perfect lodge type fighter. So technically sound. And I see him now strengthening up and, you know, getting that physicality. Hopefully he doesn't do too much. I'd like to see him just jump in and start sparring some of these kids like Sonny Edwards. Just put him in tough so he can start to harden himself up. But I'd put Ellis Trowbridge in there. I'd put Leo Atang um, boxing out of York in there. Uh, people say to me, what about Delicious Ori? And I say, no, I just don't trust those GB heavyweights. Uh, there's something about them that's, it's not savage enough. And then a lot of those other guys in the GB setup are just old dudes. And that doesn't mean that they're bad boxers. Like George Crotty has been around a long time. So you're not going to get a lot in the way of talent. You would have said Jimmy Sainz as well, because he was doing well at GB. But I think he stepped out now into the pros because like, you know, there's no realistic opportunity of Paris 2024. I just, I'm at that point now where I don't think our stable is as strong as it has been before. And that comes down to people who are coaching. And people are actually coaching to get you into GB now, not to make you a damn good boxer. And when you coach people for GB, it's really just about ta-ta, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. But it's not about being tough. It's not about being mean. It's not about making great decisions. It's just, just sheer volume of punches which in the amateurs isn't a bad thing because gb will do their analysis which will tell them right throw this many punches you win the fight but it doesn't help you in the pros as we're finding out so I've, yeah so they're the names i would put out there um for me the the two that stand head and shoulders above right now ellis trowbridge and leo atang and i wish them all the best to be honest because i think they are supremely talented kids Boxing Tunes asks me, what do I think about Mikel Lowell versus Isaac Chamberlain for the British title? Um, I'm close to Isaac, so I'm Team Isaac all the way. And that's not disrespecting Mikel Lowell. I think Mikel Lowell's a good guy. I mean, he's definitely a silent assassin. What he's got in that right hand, you cannot teach. Um, but Isaac's come up the hard way. 
I don't think power is going to intimidate Isaac. I don't think Isaac's going to allow those shots to happen. My question will be what happens when Isaac starts to turn up the, the pace with the combinations and so forth. So I'd like Isaac to win. I think he deserves a British title. And look, I'm watching a world where Badu Jack vacates his cruiserweight title and two people we've never heard of are going to end up fighting for it just so Don King can get another crack. Let the winner of these two have a crack at the WBC. You know, we have all of these cruiserweights in this country. You're telling me none of the promoters could have got that WB, WBC belt into the UK. This is everything that's wrong with boxing in 2023. But just to summarize, I've got a lot of time for Mikel Lawal. If he wasn't fighting Isaac Chamberlain, I'd be wishing him all the best. And I'd be telling you how dangerous he is. But he's fighting Isaac, who is a friend of mine and someone I've known for a long time and I'm pretty close to. So I'm team Chamberlain all day. You know, you've got to declare your biases up front so people don't think, you know, you're acting funny. Um, last question will be from Chase underscore C underscore S. And he asks about journeymen slash in-ring teachers. Now, there are two different things we're talking about here. So in-ring in teachers, I think, are your more experienced guys. You know, those guys who've done 50-odd bouts plus, right? They've been in with everyone and because... They know how to survive. They get to watch. Have you got power? Have you got a good jab? Are you causing me problems other guys haven't? And those guys are good. Um, Robbie Chapman's getting to that level now. It's always interesting talking to Robbie after a fight and then he gives his assessment of his opponent. So I think Robbie's getting to that point. And at some point, Robbie Chapman's going to be a damn good trainer. So he, he's the example I use just simply because I see Robbie Chapman at least once or twice a week. So we get to talk boxing a lot. But there are loads of guys like that. There are some retired, like Elvis Dube was like that. Hastings Rosani was like that. Louis Van Pooja, as we said. Uh, just I can't even think off the top of my head. But there are loads of guys who are like that. And then they're, they're almost like the, the other guys who are... And they're not journeymen, but they're guys who are going to be a good test for prospects. And maybe they are genuine. Maybe they are genuine in the purest of senses. Like, you know, those guys who, when you get to the eight, ten rounders, your guys like Chris Healy is a good example. You know, Chris Healy in the heavyweight division. Skilled. People forget he was right up there in the ABAs. He might have even been a Team GB. But he, he'll give you a move around and let you know if you're any good or not. I think JP fought him and he found out. Um, Phil Williams in the heavyweights, another one who has the toughness where he can do an assessment of how good you are so there are a few guys i don't think it's leveraged enough and i don't think these guys are in gyms enough i'd like to see them in gyms but a lot of that is just pulling down the barrier between amateur and pro and then these guys get an opportunity to to share that wisdom and help upskill our future generations and help toughen them up to be honest that's what's missing you know ah yeah there's no point in having journeymen if you don't learn that's what i say and hopefully these kids will learn. But I've done enough talking for today. It's been quite a long episode, but I had to get all those questions done. As always, if you like it, share it. You know, I'm trying to get my follower count above 5,000, guys. So if you can jump on Twitter, show some love, show some support. Let me cross 5,000 this weekend, please. I'll be heartbroken if I don't. Um, apart from that, um, I'm probably not going to be live tweeting anything from the... Joe Joyce fights them out for a birthday, unfortunately, but 
I will try and have my say on that as soon as I can. And on that note, I'll say take care, guys. And as you listen to this, have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.